Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 1, 13 to chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2 So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Thanks, Cheryl, for reading God's word for us. And good morning, beloved family and friends in Christ. It's so good to see all of you here in person as we gather for worship. Uh, and welcome also to those who are joining us uh, via our YouTube live stream for this worship. Uh, welcome as well. I, I hope that indeed you can spend this time turning your focus on Jesus Christ. We desperately need God's Spirit to open our eyes and to work in our hearts as we look at God's Word. So let us pray. Father God, we pray that uh, you make the book live to us. Show us yourself within your Word. Show us ourselves and show us our need for our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and make the book live to us. Change us, O Lord, to become more like Jesus, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I was a young man visiting Grace Baptist Church in the mid-1990s, and one of the first older men that came up to me was uh, Yap Kiming. For those of you who are acquainted with Kiming, you would you know that he likes to give out books and meet with people in discipling relationships. And I received one of my first good Christian books, I don't know whether you remember Kiming, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges from him. I read that book within a week and it left a profound impact on me. 
Thank you, Kim Meng, for your being a faithful follower of Jesus and for being a diligent disciple maker. The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, it was written by him, by Jerry Bridges, in 1978. And in the mid-1980s to 1990s, it became a well-read book among Christians. But the thought of pursuing holiness, you know, isn't this an old-fashioned, old-school idea among Christians? You know, nowadays, preachers and Bible teachers, we talk a lot about grace. And the gospel is emphasized, and rightly so. And for some, this talk of the pursuit of holiness seems to smell like or invite legalism. So as we look at the passage today, what is the role of holiness in a believer's life? How should we pursue holiness? And why is pursuing holiness part of a believer's call? Let us now look at 1 Peter. If you have Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 3. And Peter will tell us why we pursue holiness and how we can do so. Before we look at the text, what is holiness? You know, when we talk about someone being holy, most contemporary people will picture someone like a monk, you know, dour. Uh, fun, avoiding, a killjoy. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says about being holy. When, when God is described as holy, it, it tells us that God is other, distinct, and unique, set apart from everything else, set apart from His creation. It tells us that for God to be holy means that God is transcendently different. And He's is, he is more excellent and beautiful than all His creatures in every conceivable effect, aspect. Okay? It also speaks of God's character as morally righteous. Okay? This is the, the thing we are most familiar with when we, we hear God being described as holy. We think of God as morally righteous. But when we talk about God as holy, there is also this beauty part which sometimes we, we tend to overlook. When we talk about um, believers as holy, when the Bible talks about believers as holy, it means that believers, we are consecrated to God and we are set apart from the world. It means that as believers, we are to pursue moral and ethical upright lives. That's what it means to be holy. In this passage, Peter urges believers to live lives of holiness as our Father God who saves and ransoms us is holy. And as we look at today's passage, it can be divided into two sections. As you can see on the uh, screen behind me, you can take a picture of this. We'll be following this. And the, the Apostle Peter commends actually four actions that believers are to pursue. Okay, so the first section is be holy as your Father God is holy. And we see the Peter urging us to set our minds on the hope ahead and to be holy in our whole way of life. And the second section Going from chapter 1, verse 22 to 2-3, the Apostle Peter tells us to become what we are. And as part of that, he tells us to love one another in the body of Christ earnestly and to crave pure spiritual milk. So please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 2-3 with me and do keep your eyes on the text. So be holy as your Father God is holy. 
On 15 February 1942, Singapore fell to the Japanese army, and this was during World War II. And there were some reasons for the defeat of the British army. Um, a young man told me some of the reasons uh, today. Okay. Uh, there were some reasons why they were defeated while trying to defend Singapore. And, but one of them was their hope that Singapore was an impregnable fortress. Okay. And, and to help them, they actually had several powerful artillery emplacements on the coast of Singapore. However, these powerful guns, they face southwards towards the sea. So even though they could swivel, they largely face seawards. And we can see some remnants of this actually on the Changi coast. So you go to Changi coast, you can still find remnants of these gun placements. The guns were misplaced because ultimately the Japanese approached from the north, from Malaya. The British army, they placed their misplaced hope in the defence of Singapore Island on this gun's emplacement. And we see here, my friends, that misplaced hope is worthless. But well-founded hope is powerful. And as we look at the first section uh, from verses 13 to 21, we find that this passage is bracketed by hope. So look at the text with me. Verse 13 tells us what? To set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And verse 21 ends this section by telling us that our faith and hope is in God. And in between these two verses, Peter calls us to pursue holiness. The pursuit of holiness is grounded on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And last week, uh, Eugene uh, described the hope that we have and he spoke about Peter's glorious praise for the great work of God's mercy in Jesus Christ and this wonderful hope that we have in him. Today, Peter turns his attention now to describing our appropriate response as those who have received such grace. So if we look at verse 13, Peter tells us, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Believers, we are to set our hope fully on God's grace. And we see here, this verse starts with the word therefore, and this word is crucial. Because this word tells us that all of Peter's commands and exaltation that comes after depends on the grace that he has been describing in verses 1 to 12. What this tells us, my friends, is this call to obedience and holiness is rooted on the realities of God's grace towards us. You know, our new election, our new birth, our wonderful incorruptible inheritance, all this is what God has given to us. So what, what this tells us, the pattern of Scripture tells us, is that what God has done comes before and grounds what we are to do in response. Another way Bible teachers call this is the imperatives, the commands, is always based upon the indicatives of God's grace. Okay? What we are to do is always based on what God has already done for us. And we must never reverse 
the order. Because to do so will make us fall prey to legalism and moralism. Knowing that all that Peter tells us is based on this hope of God's grace, Peter now tells us to prepare our minds for action and be, to be sober-minded. You know, the literal, literal translation for the word preparing here is girding up the loins. You know, in ancient time, men wore loose-fitting, flea-flowing garments. Now, although it looks graceful and dignified in appearance, it actually hindered rigorous activity, such as running, or, or walking or, or, or working. So it's often necessary to gather up one's garment and to tuck it into your belt, therefore leaving your legs free to move, to engage in rigorous activity. Now this, this word here finds its modern equivalent in, in our rolling up your sleeves. So what Peter is telling, he's calling on believers to prepare to work hard, to prepare for rigorous work. Okay? Sober-minded, on the other hand, tells us that we need to avoid mental intoxication. It means being mentally alert, being self-controlled, having disciplined attention. So when Peter tells us that believers, we have to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us by the revelation of Jesus Christ, what Peter means for us to do is that we are to devote every ounce of our mental, spiritual and emotional energy to contemplating and concentrating on the hope we have in Jesus Christ and on the grace to come. And this grace to come is the consummation of all the promises and all the blessings of salvation that God has promised in verses 1 to 12. And this is fully fulfilled when Christ returns. After urging us to do this, Peter then urge believers, urges believers to be holy in our whole way of life. And we see this in verses 14 to 16. Let me just read this for us again as we pay attention to these three verses. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He, meaning God, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Do you get that? The first word is, the first phrase is, as obedient children. Peter is telling us that our new identity and status is that of children, children of God. And he encouraged us to holiness of life. So given our new identity and new status, we are to pursue holiness. And this call to holiness has two sides. If you look at it, there's one negative and one positive. Negatively, we are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. That's, we see that in verse 14. And positively, we are to be holy as God is holy. And, and we read this. This is cited from uh, Leviticus 11.44, which we read just now in our call to worship. So what Peter is saying is this. Peter calls us that tells us that our way of life before we became followers of Jesus was governed by our ignorance. We were ignorant but of the grace of God and the hope that we have in Christ. And this gives rise to the sinful desires and habits that kept us in bondage to sin. Positively, Peter calls believers to be holy as God 
is holy. You know, by, by this, Peter does not mean that we strive to be like God in being utterly unique in the universe. Uh, but the key to understanding this command is found in comparing verses 14 and 15 together. To live holy as God is holy means to imitate God. It means uh, to live separating ourselves from those sinful passions that characterize our lives before we came to know Christ. It means distancing ourselves from the lifestyle that used to dominate our existence. It means cutting ourselves off from whatever would desensitize us to sin or blur our spiritual vision or to stir up our sinful nature. We have to put this aside. Why? Because like father, like son. No, I was looking at a baby uh, last week uh, from a new parent and, and we were look, looking at him and said, hey, you know, who does he look like? And automatically we try to look at the father or the mother to see the resemblance, right? Because automatically we know that the ch child will resemble the parent. So like father, like son. Being holy means imitating the character of God in living morally and ethically upright lives. So why? The big question, why? Why should believers pursue holiness? It's important to know the why, because if we only do the how, then we focus on just rule-keeping. The why will then change and motivate our hearts. So why? Why should believers pursue holiness? Believers ought to live in reverent fear of God our judge. And we see this in verse 17. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In this passage, we see that God is both our Father and our judge. Believers, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner suitable to our relationship with God as both our Father and judge. And what this passage tells us, this verse tells us about God as judge. God judges impartially. With regard to rank, status, without regard to rank, status, or privilege, all this doesn't matter to God, right? So how then are we judged? The standard of God's judgment is the works of each individual, the deeds of each individual. And we see this theme running in both Old and New Testament. And we see this especially in Revelation 20, verses 12 to 15. But I want to be careful here. As we hear that we are judged by works, we, we tend to think that, hey, we need to work for salvation. Peter is not saying that works are the ground or the basis of our acceptance before God. Trust and faith in Jesus uh, uh, gives us acceptance before God. Instead, what Peter is saying is that works and deeds serve as appropriate yardstick of judgment insofar as they are a visible expression of a believer's inward faith commitment. And we see this in James 2. In short, what it means is that our works, our deeds, are proof of our faith. And our primary responsibility then is to conduct ourselves with fear during our lives as exiles, as elect exiles on earth. You know, and for us hearing this, it seems almost odd to hear that we ought to live in fear of our Father. Peter does not mean by this that we need to live being afraid or live in doubt or anxious about your relationship with our Father God. 
The emphasis here is on reverence, awe, and an ever-present sense of utter dependency on God's power and mercy. To fear God is to be conscious of God's everywhere, every time presence, and to be aware of our absolute moment by moment dependence on God to all, do all that He co- commanded. And this is what it means to fear God, to live aware of God's presence, utterly dependent on Him, moment by moment. Peter finally urges us to pursue holiness because of the high price that was paid for the redemption from our former life. And we see this in verses 18 to 21. I know this, I'm trying to pack uh, quite a number of verses on this one slide. This is too small, please look at your Bible. Okay? So this is what Peter says. Knowing that you were ransomed from the fruitile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter gives us here another reason to conduct ourselves in fear and holiness. We do so knowing the source and nature and the price that was paid for our being ransomed from sin. This will motivate us to fear God and conduct ourselves in holiness of life. To be ransomed means to be set free to be redeemed or be liberated from sin. This refers to a well-known Greco-Roman custom where a sum of money was paid and the slave was considered to have been redeemed and set free. According to Peter, all of us, before we came to know Jesus, trusted in Jesus Christ, we were in captivity or bondage to the futile ways inherited by our forefathers. In other words, we were slaves to the sinful, useless, meaningless way of life that kept us apart from God. And the price paid, Peter is saying here, is not perishable things. The price paid was the precious blood of Christ. It is precious because of whose blood it is. It's Christ's blood. Who was the lamb without blemish, or spot. And, and to be without blemish, spot, or stain is to lack any or all moral defects. Christ's sacrifice was acceptable because he was morally and ceremonially perfect, the only one who was perfectly obedient to God, and the only righteous sacrifice. My friends, this is good news for us sinners, and this is the gospel that Christians believe that Christ as a perfect sacrifice, died in our place and was raised by God so that if we trust in Him, we will also receive this forgiveness of sin and to be raised to this new life with God our Father. If we look at this passage, what uh, Paul, Peter seems to be saying is this, as Pastor Sam Storm uh, paraphrases as well, do not conduct yourselves as though the ransom was not precious. The blood of Christ has redeemed you from a useless and meaningless and futile way of life. So do not live your new life 
as if the ransom price was anything less than glorious and priceless. We pursue holiness because of the precious sacrifice that Christ has made for our sakes. And this precious nature of this sacrificial price is emphasized yet again by Peter's description of Christ as having been foreknown from the foundation of the world. The point here is that God's purpose in ransoming sinners was not an afterthought, but was conceived and planned by God before time began. And as, even though it was planned from eternity plus, God's redemptive purpose came to fruition when Christ was made manifest for our sakes in the last times. And the last times is, is the time between Jesus' first and second coming. So my friends, it's made manifest in our time. We are living now in the last times. And it's true faith in Jesus Christ that we as believers now have access to God. In addition, God showed that show us that the blood of Christ was sufficient to ransom sinners from death and condemnation. And this was demonstrated by God having raised Jesus from the dead. The ransom Christ paid was vindicated and declared by God to be of immeasurable worth in achieving the redemption of sinners when God raised Christ to life and gave Him glory. And the purpose of this glorious work of redemption is that our faith and hope might be in God alone. Jesus Christ has done the necessary work to bring us back, to reconcile us with God in faith. He was eternally foreknown, manifested in human form, sacrificed on the cross, raised from the dead, and given the glory by the Father. And through all of this, we come to hope in God. Beloved, because we have been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we are then to live our lives in pursuit of holiness, setting our minds on the hope that is to come. So my friends, ask yourselves this question. In what ways has my life reflected the fruit of my pursuit of holiness? Now, Jerry Bridges in his book, the Pursuit of Holiness, reminds us this. So we see that God has made provision for our holiness through Christ. He has delivered us from sin's reign so that we now can resist sin. But the responsibility for resisting is ours. God does not do that for us. To confuse the potential for resisting which God provides with the responsibility of, uh, for resisting which is ours is to court disaster in the pursuit of holiness we have a responsibility to pursue holiness. In what ways has your life reflected your pursuit of holiness? Are we pursuing holiness in our relationship with, with God? Or have we gone back to treasuring and seeking things in our own lives? You know, our relationships and ambitions in our work and for our families and given them priority over God. Have we been pursuing sensual pleasures and indulging in sexual fantasies and thought lives 
rather than dedicating our desires and thoughts to God. And my friends, our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of holiness is best seen in our relationship with others. So how are you treating others in your school, in your workplaces, in your families and in our church? Do you treat them with love, compassion and kindness? Or do you treat them as things? So do you treat your colleagues as things to help you achieve your ambition? Or do you treat your friends as things to satisfy your desire to be, to be appreciated and affirmed? Now, many of us, we're reluctant to admit this. Sometimes we treat people more as things than people. Okay? We treat them as things to be used for our selfish desires. The danger when we talk about pursuing holiness, especially in churches, is that as churches, we tend to talk about and try to avoid sins that are out there. But we tolerate respectable sins within the church. You know, we talk about our opposition against sexual immorality in our society out there, but we are okay with gossip and slander in our church. Even though we look at Scripture, God has a lot to say about gossip and slander as well. Right? We rail against the injustice and greed in our system, in our society. And then right now, because I know it's an exam period, some of us push our children to get good grades as the ultimate priority. Now, I want to be careful with my last comment here. You know, I know we are amid the exam period for, for our children, and our children should work hard and use the gifts that God has given them well. And as parents, it's right to be concerned and to love our children. But we need to examine where our emphasis is. Have we prioritized and communicated to our children that good grades are more important than God in our interaction with our children? What values are we communicating? Even amid the stressful year-end examination time, we also need to help our younger ones pursue holiness. We need to help them realize that grades must be looked at in respect to who God is, and our priority is God first. So as a church, how are we doing in our battle against respectable sins in our pursuit of holiness? Now, there's a list that Jerry Bridges has in another book that he writes called Respectable Sins. And I just want to go through this list even as we hear this list, we need to examine our hearts. So how are we doing in our battle against ungodliness? Anxiety and frustration, discontentment and unthankfulness even as I read the first four on this list, I'm really convicted. Because oftentimes, I'm discontented, I complain, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful, I don't give thanks often enough. Okay. What about you, my friends? How are you doing a battle against pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability, anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, and related sins, sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, worldliness. Are we battling them in our pursuit of holiness? Or have we begun to tolerate them within the church as respectable sins? But even as we are convicted of this, give thanks to God 
Because God not only forgives us, but He has given us the power to pursue holiness in and through Christ Jesus. You know, when I was a graduate student studying biology, I helped as a teaching assistant in two undergraduate class on entomology. So, so what entomology is, is the study of insects. Okay? And I find the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly fascinating. Because the insect goes from a crawling, worm-like, leaf-eating creature and is changed and transformed into a graceful, flying, wing, nectar-drinking creature. Once it's transformed, it doesn't go back to its caterpillar habits, right? You don't see a butterfly chewing on leaves. No, it will behave as a butterfly. And my friends, doesn't this describe the life of a believer? Once we trusted in Jesus Christ and are given new life and change, we do not go back to our old ways. We don't go from a life drinking the nectar of grace back to a worm-like crawling in the bed of our own sins. We need to live behind our caterpillar way of life and we need to become what we are now. And Peter continues his instructions on how Christians should live in community with each other now that we are changed. He commands believers to love one another earnestly and grow in Christ by craving pure spiritual milk. And he does this in verses chapter 1, verse 22 to 2-3. Peter tells us that sincere love within the Christian community is the hallmark of a believer who has experienced the new birth and is converted. We are to love one another earnestly and crave the spiritual nourishment that fosters a vital Christian community. Peter talks about imperishable things such as gold, silver and gold in verse 18. Sorry, Peter talks about perishable things such as silver and gold in verse 18. And he now tells us about the Word of God. And the Word of God is an imperishable seed. So we look at this. This is on the slide in front of you from verses 22 to 25. Peter tells us that we can love one another because our souls have been purified. We see this in verse 22. This refers to when we first received the Gospel and God's act of consecrating us unto Himself. Peter also tells us that obedience is a correct response to truth. And the truth, as described here, is the Word of God, specifically the gospel or good news that is proclaimed. We see this in verse 25. Therefore, when Peter tells us to obey the truth, it means believing and trusting in the gospel. It is the Word of God that both produces new birth in us and purifies our soul so that we may love one another. To love one another earnestly from a pure heart is a restatement of uh, uh, verse 22, um, the uh, first part of verse 22, sincere brotherly love, both which emphasize that our love must be sincere and pure. So what we see here is this, the pursuit of holiness is never an independent solo exercise. We pursue holiness in a community as we earnestly love one another. And Peter tells us the reason our love must be sincere and pure is because we have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. 
In 1 Peter 1.3, we were born again to a living hope. Here we are born again to the sincere love of the brethren. We can love because we have been born to a new nature. We have experienced a spiritual rebirth. So we have, a new, we have new spiritual DNA. Therefore, the spiritual nature of this new life should rule our, the heart of how we live. We should become what we are now. And when Peter spe- speaks in verse 23 of the Word of God and verse 25 of the Word of the Lord, uh, of the word of the Lord, he means both the spoken word and the written word, both preaching and, the, and scripture. And we know he includes the spoken word because he refers to it explicitly in verse 25 as the good news that was preached to you. But we can see that Peter also has in mind the written scriptures because we see a citation of Isaiah 40, verse 6 to 8 in verses 24 to 25. He calls the Word of God here imperishable and that which is enduring and eternal. And it's this living, abiding Word of God that causes the new birth. The Word of God is living because it has the power to give life, to impart life. It is abiding because the life it imparts is permanent, sustained and never dies. And finally, we see the contrast in verse 24 a bit of uh, uh, grass and flower. It's not between the Word of God and literal grass and flowers. The grass and flowers given here, cited here, gives a picture of anything transient, temporary or impermanent in which we foolishly put our confidence. So we ought not to put our confidence in anything that is transient or impermanent. Rather, we are to put our confidence in the Word of God. And the word true, which we are born again, is the gospel. It means that God employs in His work of imparting new and eternal life to us, to human souls, God uses the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is proclaimed and preached. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives new life and sustains our growth in holiness. And how does the word of the gospel sustain our growth in holiness? The word is spiritual nourishment. And we are to crave this pure spiritual milk. Let's read, let me read for us the last three verses. First Peter 2, verse 1 to 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter continues his encouragement by summing up the essential elements of a life of holiness. He lists five attitudes and actions which are inconsistent with a life devoted to the sort of brotherly love to which he has called us believers to. He tells us believers that such attitudes and actions must be put away. We are to put aside or strip off our old sinful habits like a set of tattered worn-out clothes. And the first to be put away is malice. Peter here is clearly instructing us to stop being angry, to cease feeling wrath, to terminate malicious thoughts, to stop feeling envious of others. He evidently believes that we are responsible before God through the power of the indwelling spirit 
to do whatever is necessary to remove these sinful emotions from our souls. Secondly, we have to put away all deceit. We should not lie to one another within the Christian community. We are also to put away hypocrisy, envy and slander. Hypocrisy points to being two-faced, saying and acting one way when we mean another, being both self-deceived and deceiving others. Envy points to a desire for or resentment of some privilege or benefit that belongs to another brother or sister. Envy is the fruit of dissatisfaction with God. If God is truly enough for us, we will not feel the need to have what others enjoy. And lastly, slander is most often motivated by our desire for revenge or self-enhancement. It is often driven by our longing to deflect attention from our own failures and faults. By shining light on someone else through slander, we try to deflect attention from our own faults and sins. Finally, we must see the connection between this harmful community vices in verse 1 and what follows in verse 2 and 3. Now, Peter here presupposes that we seek to experience an ever-increasing desire for God's Word and we want to taste God's kindness and goodness more fully. In this case, we must realize that as our satisfaction in God's goodness and kindness rises, the desires of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are destroyed. And the inverse is true as well. As we resist these temptations and lay them aside, our desire for God grows more and more. This is our only appropriate response for those of us who are now born again, having tasted the goodness of God. We who are God's beloved newborn infants, Verse 2 then tells us to long for the pure spiritual milk. You know, when we hear the reference milk here, we think to Hebrews 5, but milk here is not a reference to the low-level introductory teachings of the faith. This is contrast to the milk and solid food uh, distinction in Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. Instead, the phrase here, as used by Peter, refers to the longing and craving that believers should have for the Word of God. You know, just like newborn babies. Those of you, uh, new parents, if a newborn babies, you don't have to tell your baby to crave for milk, right? Your babies instinctively crave milk. So indeed, believers, my friends, if we have tasted the goodness of God, and now we are saying we have already trusted in Jesus Christ, we would ha- then have experienced new birth and new life. And like newborn infants, we are to desire and long for the pure, pristine truth of God's Word. As pastor and theologian Edmund Clowney writes, it is the Word of God, the good news of the Gospel, that is the means of our new birth and our nurture in holiness. What it means is this, the Gospel both saves and sanctifies. The Gospel, God's Word, gives salvation and alone enables growth into the salvation we have already received. And my friends, we will experience this salvation in its perfect expression when Jesus comes back again. So my friends, ask yourself, how can we as church better let the Word of God nourish our growth in holiness? 
as Jerry Bridges again helpfully writes, we are, come, we are to come to the Word in a spirit of humility and contrition because we recognize that we are sinful, that we are often blind to our own sinfulness, and that we need the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. My friends, we need the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit working through God's Word to help us grow in holiness. But what if I don't desire to read and study the Word? You're not alone. You know, I sometimes struggle with approaching and coming to God's Word myself. What you first need to do is to admit and confess your lack of desire and joy. And then pray that God will increase and nourish your hunger for His Word and to strengthen your delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you act and pursue God's Word. And we have several avenues for us present here at Grace Baptist Church to pursue the Word. From bigger, more public, formal platforms to smaller, more personal ministries. So come gather for our services Come prepare to hear from God's Word in our sermons. You can also attend, equip, and learn how to connect and apply the Gospel to your lives. You can also attend small group Bible studies, Wednesday Bible study, our CGs, our women Bible studies, uh, and this will help you uh, um, take in more of God's Word. We are also encouraging members to meet one-on-one for Bible reading in twos and threes uh, to read the Bible or for side-by-side personal ministries where we apply Scripture in practical ways as we walk alongside others who are struggling. These are just some of the ways we can get involved, both participating and leading in these studies. So if you're interested, please feel free to ask the elders and pastors and ministry staff to get you connected. And in getting involved, we love one another in the church. Because get this, this last point I have, brothers and sisters, get this. Loving a brother and sister is seeking to meet practical needs. Yes, this is true. And helping them grow in holiness. That's what it means to love one another as well. And as Peter tells us, growth is in holiness is primarily accomplished by the Word of God. And our goal in helping one another grow in holiness so that all of us, all of us, can taste and enjoy the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. Finally, my friends, as believers, we have tasted of the goodness and grace of our God. And it's this goodness and grace we remember as we gather now to observe the Lord's Supper. So my friends, if you haven't gotten the elements of the Lord's Supper, you can indicate to the ushers, it's available both in front and behind the back of the worship hall, let us now remember the goodness of grace and grace of Jesus Christ as we observe the Lord's Supper. You know, the Lord's Supper is a shared meal in the church signifying that many have joined to one. And because we, sh- we share in Christ together. Please hold on, uh, wait until I give uh, instructions to peel the plastic. Uh, during the two periods of heightened alert, because we were unable to come physically together as church and share in a meal, the pastors and elders, we have decided to defer our practice of this ordinance until we can resume in-person gathering. So we're very thankful to God that now we are able to gather and share in the Lord's Supper today as we gather in person. And the Lord's Supper serves for us as a means of grace from God 
that we can that can encourage us in the gospel in this unusual time of this COVID-19 pandemic. So as we take of the Lord's Supper, may this strengthen our hearts as we faithfully seek to live lives that pursue holiness. So my friends, now let's now turn our hearts to the Lord's Supper as, as our pianist uh, play some uh, music for us. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ for us, the church. It tells us of God's faithful, enduring love for His people when He gave His Son for us sinners. His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave His life as a ransom for us on the cross. Christ's body was crucified and broken on the cross. His blood shed for us. He gave His life so that our sins can be forgiven. He was raised to life so that we can have eternal life. Let us remember all this as we share in the Lord's Supper. We invite baptized believers to join us for this Lord's Supper. Let us pray now and prepare our hearts for this Lord's Supper. Oh, Father God, we do not presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but we trust instead in your mercy and goodness. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross. For our sake, you made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, forgive our transgressions, our sins, and cleanse our hearts. Help us to daily live with this glorious hope of Jesus' return. In whose name we pray. Amen.